Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Welcome to the final episode of our third season. We're going to be talking about one of the cornerstones of the modern security industry, security research. All three of us have conducted it and traveled the world to speak about it, and we've chosen some of our favorite research projects to share with you today. From scanning the internet to discover IPv6 addresses, to hacking one of the first major Linux phones, to a software stack that enables you to start your own cellular tower, we've got a few really cool projects to cover. Join us. And we, uh, we, we rochambeaued for order here. And I think, Logan, you, you came out on top. So we, we, we kind of started in, in that, anticipation. What, what? Is Rochambeau uh, paper, rock, scissors? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> ne- next time we're in person, Logan, we'll play it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Next time we're in person. Um, so we, we were going back and forth about what our kind of what research projects we wanted to talk about are because like there's so many good research projects and it's come up time and time again. I, th- I think like one of the last few episodes we even talked about like the DefCon talk where the guy got his where the guy got his laptop stolen and it turned out really poorly for the guy that stole his laptop. Anyhow, like there's so much cool research to talk about. And so it's really hard to, to choose just one, but all three of us have chosen one project to talk about here. Um, and I imagine this won't be the last time that we do this just because there's, there's so much stuff that, that so we, many projects and it, yeah. it's all so cool. It's, it's yeah, it's all really cool. But Logan, you get the honor of kicking us off here and, and talking about Ubuntu phones, which I imagine most people don't realize were, were it was even ever a thing. Yeah, yeah, it was a thing. Um, I don't know if I'm going to take credit for destroying Ubuntu's click packages, but I certainly contributed to that. (laughs) So, um, let's see. I'm going to have to think about why exactly I picked this project because as you were saying, we have so many projects, it's hard to pick a favorite. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think what I really liked about this project was um, going through it, it really kind of exemplifies what I think are some of the, you know, uh, I wouldn't say core values, but some of the features that hackers require to really get work done. Mm. So, okay, well, I'll start from the beginning. Um, I'm a phone nerd. I love phones. Uh, we, <laughs> you and Drew, yeah. I know. I I don't know what it is, but like uh, sitting here at my desk, I'm looking at a Pine phone on one shelf and an Ubuntu phone on another. (laughs) So um, this story takes place in, I think it was late 2015, early 2016. And Ubuntu announced their... I believe it was the second version of the Ubuntu phone made by a company called Miezu. And when this phone came out, I was just so hyped. I was like, oh, man, I I need to get one of these phones somehow. And for context, Logan is it really loves Android phones for the purpose of, hey, I just want to control my phone. So the prospect of being able to run like raw Linux on a phone, I'm sure was super appealing. 
Oh, incredibly appealing. Yeah. <laughs> then I could just do whatever I wanted with the hardware. Um, so let's see. Um, did you own a uh, Nokia N900? I did not, actually. Was that oh, the brick man. one? Is that the one you could throw against the wall? No, 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 no. So that's no. the Nokia 3310, which also oh. has an interesting feature that criminals found out and they were able to start selling um, creds for bank accounts. But um, yeah, the N900 is kind of like the first uh, what people might consider phone for hackers. Um, oh, gotcha. Well, now I'm just going to have to go on eBay and procure one. <laughs> He's got to go. Oh, man. Yeah. 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 If you if you haven't played around with it, it's, it's pretty cool. Um it's got tons of vulnerabilities in it, but sorry to sidetrack you. I just, oh, it's okay. Also, I'm only half joking about eBay mentioned Mbop in one of these sessions and went and bought the very first cassette that I ever hired. In. <laughs> he did. He did. He he sent us a photo after it came in. It was just like, it came in guys. I was like, Oh my God. He actually bought it. <laughs> and, and, and we were just talking about what we're going to have to do between the seasons here because uh, we do try to kind of like ramp up our production quality and, and just kind of improve things across seasons. And one of the things is going to be a soundboard. And so now I'm thinking we're probably going to need some umbop on the soundboard. Oh, <laughs> clearly, clearly. Yeah. How, how can we do that with licensing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need Drew singing umbop on the soundboard. <laughs> Even better. Okay, okay. All right, back to phone. the phones. Back to the phones. <laughs> phones. So, um... Ubuntu came out with this phone created by Miezu. Uh, I really wanted it just to play around with, but also I had this had this idea. I figured that Ubuntu is it's a fantastic project. It's a Linux distribution, which is a flavor of Linux. I run Ubuntu on like all of my hardware. I've donated to the project. I have a lot of respect for Ubuntu. Having said that, uh, my working thesis was that in the process of moving from uh, you know servers and desktop hardware to phone hardware, going through that repurposing process with their software, that they would goof somewhere along the way, and I would be able to fully compromise the phone. So that was the idea. So, um, oh, with those two things in mind, it was it was a no brainer. It's like I'll get the phone, I'll learn how it works, and then I'll break it, and it'll just be a a great time. Unfortunately, this phone was not available in America. It was only available in the UK, I believe. But thankfully, I asked one of my friends, who's originally from the UK, to talk to his mother. And his mother bought this phone for me and then mailed it to the U.S. So I was like a, a kid on Christmas morning. I'm a little embarrassed to say I get this phone. I power it on. I'm super hyped. And then um, starts just a solid month of me digging into this phone with absolutely nothing to show for it. And I think that's what really makes this story special for me. because. Um, uh, I never really got a talk or anything out of this. It was mostly just something that I launched into for fun and with a thesis. And I stuck with it long enough that I ended up making lemonade from lemons. 
because uh, as you guys know, it's so easy to just throw in the towel on these hacking mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. And it really is that grit. I think that's one of the defining features of successful hackers. I mean, that that's the, the number of times that I've done a pen test where you, you know, you're like, I, I don't know if we're going to get in. Like, and you, you basically, from any point, being able to judge how close you are to compromising something, it's, it's not possible. Unless it's a case where it's like, oh, you have some attack chain where you like turn some small exploit into a larger exploit into a larger exploit and you know that you're making progress every time. The majority of like hacking stuff that I've done, you don't really know how close you are to getting something until you've gotten it. And yeah, to, to your point, Logan, if you've been working on it for an extended period of time and you haven't gotten anything yet, it can get really frustrating. But yeah, to, you usually get in. You usually get in. Yeah, you just have to will it. Yeah. And that's what it is. So how are you? How are you? Like so, so, you take this thing and you turn it on. What were your first steps to even try hacking into it? Was it like connecting via USB or? So, um, for this phone, I was generally interested in how it worked. So I really just turned it on. I got a shell and started poking around the system as if it was just a normal Linux box. But how'd you and get the shell? I'm pretty sure sh- that's a great question. I think I just like started like open SSH or something on it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I, I just started poking around. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it looks like a normal Linux box with a couple key differences. Um, I'm try- trying my best not to get too technical immediately, but uh, the phone had a separate recovery partition. Uh exactly like an android phone actually it was an android uh, recovery partition as i remember it and the ubuntu phone had an app store and the way the apps were distributed were in these things called click packages and a click package is a precursor to snap packages which are really prevalent now and all that they're just a um a container for an application basically and uh as you were saying chris uh one of the things that kept me going was i kept finding little things that i found to be very encouraging uh, to the point where it's like oh so i can easily reboot into recovery mode if i'm root and then um you know just re-image the entire phone Mm. from the recovery partition um also, passwords, uh, since it was a phone and your password was your PIN and that password was the same as the root password, most passwords would be four characters, oh, which I boy. thought was really interesting. Were they were they storing passwords in the standard like Etsy shadow format? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so they're hashing four digit. Yeah. Yeah. Strings. yeah. yeah okay. you're, you're getting there. Okay. Okay. So and also I was really fascinated by click packages because it was just a new um like container format I was not familiar with. Um so let's see after spending like nearly a month on this without any real progress I f- I was I think I was just installing an app while running strace and I saw this weird dpackage invocation and I was like, 
huh, interesting. And then I started browsing um, some of the Ubuntu source code for click packages. And it turns out that if you have this one file on the file system, it allows you to disable the walled garden that protects you from the applications. So that's also nice. Um, so with that, I was like, okay, well, let's just see if I can upload that to the app store. And I attempt to upload it. And there's a, um, uh, they analyze the click package on the app store side. And then they're like, no, 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 you're trying to do something wacky here. It's like, okay, you got me. But after looking through like that source and the click package source and also the source on the recovery partition, this is the final attack chain I ended up with. So there was a, a bug in D package, which I never reported um, because it didn't really seem like a security concern. But um, in the invocation, there was a flag to exclude either a directory or files. And depending on the way that's formatted, it wouldn't work correctly. So I was able to construct a click package that would pass the app store's analysis that once a D package installed, would just drop a file on the file system saying, hey, just don't protect this application, okay? So then you can escape the container. From there, it was a really easy script to um, just enumerate all four character passwords, get root, and then uh, create a cut. I had created a custom recovery partition image, download that, reboot into recovery, and then there was a second flaw, which was not an obvious security issue. It was actually in a to-do comment for BusyBox. That BusyBox is it's um, a single binary that generally runs in embedded Linux that offers a bunch of functionality. Hmm. And in this comment, it was for tar. It's like, oh, if you construct a tar package in this particular way you can drop files outside of the extraction <laughs> directory good so of course you know abuse mm -hmm. that to drop yet another file on the file system to just disable uh the crypto to uh, check the signature on the recovery image Ooh. so then uh i could flash the boot partition so that once the phone reboots, instead of saying like powered by Ubuntu on the splash screen, it would say powered by Logan Lamb because I just thought that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, get this attack chain working. I'm feeling great. And then I upload it to the app store and I go to bed. And this is the second part of this story that I like so much because uh, without going off track too much. Uh, I often think about um, normalization of deviance, which is something I read about in a military article of fighter pilots who do things that really aren't standard and they just keep doing it until it becomes standard operating procedure, despite it being incredibly dangerous. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, 
margin of safety is decreasing. There's some inherent, you know, variability in whatever you're doing. And then you just goof. And this is an example of that where, you know, I really should have been thinking a little bit more prior to uploading this potentially, you know, dangerous click package to the app store. Um, I, I go into work and maybe a day or two later and a buddy comes over with his computer. And he's like, hey, have you seen this news article? I was like, no. <laughs> What is it? <laughs> and um, sure enough, someone had, well, not just someone, multiple people had downloaded my POC malware <laughs> <laughs> off of the Ubuntu app store and installed it. And I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> it, it was It was just such a mess because it was like, it was clearly a POC application, like Hello World. I was just some no-name guy uploading it to the App Store. And I guess a bunch of maybe Ubuntu devs were curious and they downloaded it. <laughs> so, you know, the, at that point, it's like, I really goofed, accidentally compromised some people. <laughs> I should get, get a hold of Ubuntu. And, um, you know, I'm just sweating bullets, so stressed. And I eventually get a hold of them and explain the situation and this is my other favorite part of this story is they were, you know, really cool about it. It's like, hey, just do us a favor and don't do that. It's like there are better <laughs> ways to go about this. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I just didn't think anyone would download it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good story of, uh, you know, having an, an idea, sticking with it. Uh, accomplishing the goal but also it's a good example of the mixed bag of responsible disclosure because this is oh yeah for sure the biggest mistake i've made with that mm -hmm. with respect to that and it turned out okay so yeah. i don't know what's to be learned from that sounds like ubuntu is great and everybody should use it yeah ubuntu is great uh, that one of the things that that brought to mind for me is also the indicators that you're getting closer, they can be there. Or maybe not even that you're getting closer, but I feel like over the years where I was doing pen testing, I got the sense for like blood in the water where like if you're reviewing oh, yeah. some code or you're doing like a network pen test, there's basically like things that you'll see that'll be like, ooh, either there's like the wrong coding patterns at play here or hey, there's some sloppiness going on or hey, like the access control groups clearly aren't well managed. Like there's there's indicators that like, hey, by the way, this probably isn't set up like completely correctly and it's going to be there. And those definitely helped me continue on in the face of like, well, I haven't gotten anything yet. But yeah, so if you can see those things where it's like, oh yeah, there's there's some flaws here. I just haven't found one that I could exploit yet uh, is totally, yeah, I, I, that, I, I totally feel that. Mm -hmm. and, and to that point, uh, like that entire attack chain there was no like binary RE or like yep. ROP chain or anything just super spicy plus. like that. Yeah. yeah. Looking at the source, it's like, oh, I just need a file on the file system and it acts as an escape hatch for all security yep. checking. I'm going <laughs> like, to focus well, that, on that. That seems like a bad idea, but okay. <laughs> so that Ubuntu phone stuff sounds pretty cool. Um, but I have a different favorite. Well, it's it's not even it's not it's one of my favorites, and I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into that now. And this one is also research that I did um, with with my friend Mark, 
And we should we should probably do another episode on this where we pick research that we didn't do specifically or like are the, the favorite talks that we've heard or like what the conferences were, stuff like that. No, for I think sure. All, all yeah. of ours were talking about stuff that we've done personally. But um, so Logan, you and Mark and I, we had a research project once upon a time um, called Cable Tap. And it was where we found a lot of vulnerabilities in Comcast uh, set top boxes and home uh, access gateways. Twenty six or uh, twenty six CVEs affecting over ten million pieces of equipment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That NBD and and NBD. And one of the one of the cooler attack chains that we had required knowledge of an IPv six address for the set top box. And when we were doing a bunch of investigation into why this was, it, it, it turned out that it's like the standard Linux firewalls that you set up via this tool called IP tables by default only apply to IPv4. There's a completely separate table and a completely separate command for IPv6. So if you have if you have configured your firewalls in such a way that you deny everything, unless you've known about the second command, you've really only denied everything for IPv4. And for for our listeners, IPv4 and IPv6, um, they're both references to two different two different types of IP addressing schemes. So you can think of an IP address the same way that you have a street address, where it's going to be like one two three something lane city state zip code. You have this address that you can give to the post office, really anybody that needs to send uh, send anything to your door, and that uniquely identifies where you where you are, where the where the package should be delivered. And if you think about the structure of the address, it goes from more specific to less specific. So it'll be like you know a number, and then the road that you're on, and then the city that you're in, and then the state that you're in. And I guess the zip code kind of screws up that analogy, but but point being that it's like less more specific to less specific and that's how the stuff gets routed in the real world very similar in in the computer world where you have ip addresses instead of like street addresses and those ip addresses are a way that computers can connect to one another and share information um when ip addresses first came out well actually i guess i shouldn't say when they first came out because this was years and years ago but the first major ip addressing protocol was IPv4, and IPv4 is just a an address for your computer that is 32 bits wide. So a bit being a one or a zero, um, there's 32 of them. You know, with one bit you can represent two states. With two bits you can represent four states. With three bits you can represent eight states. Every additional bit doubles the amount of addresses that you can have. So with 32 bits, you can have two to the power of 32 possible addresses. Um, and that's a lot. And back when IP addressing was first coming out, it was like, that's sufficient to cover all the computers that we'll need. Uh, but it turns out that there are way more than two to the power of 32 computers connected devices in the world today. Thanks, so, IoT. Yeah, yeah th- thanks, IoT. Thanks, corporate networks. Thanks, like, yeah, <laughs> cell phones. Like, so the, there, there's this problem now where, you know, the original IP addressing protocol did not have enough addresses to go around. And so what's the solution? Well, you just add more bits. So IPv6 works effectively the same way, but instead of 32 bits of data, 
it's 128 bits of data. So there's a total of 2 to the power of 128 possible IPv6 addresses. And so hopefully we're never going to run out of IP addresses to, to route traffic now that we've switched to net, now that IPv6 is, is pretty heavily supported. But I'm sure the folks that built IPv4 also felt similarly about the address space that they chose. So who knows what the future holds. Uh, but IPv6 is the newer and larger address space that we use for routing traffic across the internet. Um, and so bringing back to, to the project that, that Logan and I were working on, this Comcast set-top box, if you could figure out the IPv6 address for it, you could connect to it over the internet and gain access to the service because it just wasn't firewalled off. Um, and so this, this got me thinking like, wow, that's wild. I wonder... I wonder how much, uh, how, how prevalent this problem is where there are just network services available on IPv6 addresses that nobody realizes are exposed because it's not an IPv4. They don't have their firewalls up. And so I think like this is going to be a really cool research project. And so I go and I start scanning the internet for IPv6 like network services being exposed. And... Um, what I learned pretty quickly, or what I realized pretty quickly, is there's so many damn IPv6 addresses out there that finding them is the really hard problem. Like with with IPv4 addresses, I could actually just like spin up a machine in uh, DigitalOcean, which is a terrible hosting service. Don't use them. Uh, they deleted all my data. Do not use them ever. <laughs> um, I could spin up a machine in DigitalOcean and scan the entire IPv4 address space for a single port in like, let's say, 12 hours. Um, I can't do that with IPv6 because it turns out that if that, that whole 12 hours is only going to be one infinitesimally small fraction of the overall IPv6 address space. The space is so huge. Yeah. It's it's hard to even fathom. I mean, for for context, two to the power of one hundred and twenty eight. If you when you are designing a cryptographic system, um, if the likelihood that somebody is going to guess a key or some cryptographic artifact correctly is one over two to the power of one hundred twenty eight, that is considered cryptographically secure. Which is to say that that address space is so massive that correctly guessing anything within it is sufficiently hard that it is cryptographically secure, which is like NSA can't break it. Uh, well, hopefully they can't break it. it it's just that's it's such an absolutely massive space. Uh, I just did two to the power of 128 in a Python shell, and I don't know how to read this number. <laughs> and his huge. computer's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so uh, this... Basically, this research project shifts from a let me find all of the vulnerable stuff that's on uh, that's on IPv6. Like, how the hell do I actually find IPv6 addresses? And this ends up taking me down, or taking Mark and I down a really interesting road. Where there was some, I, I, I think it might have been out of Stanford. I, I should I should quote myself. Anybody that wants to learn more about IPv666, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube about it. We we gave the presentation on it a number of times. Um, but there was this existing research where folks had analyzed the structure of IPv6 addresses. Because while, yes, there's two to the 128 uh, possible addresses, humans are always going to take patterns and embed them in things that they use. So 
these researchers basically found that there is this general structure in these IPv6 addresses. And they came out with an algorithm for generating new IPv6 addresses. And so we use that as the source of our inspiration to, to make our own algorithm. We basically tweaked it a little bit uh, because theirs was, theirs was meant to scan for a specific like, number of IP addresses. And we wanted ours to just continue scanning ad infinitum. And you basically take this algorithm, you take a big old batch of IP, IPv6 addresses, you feed it into this algorithm and it will create a predictive model. And then you use that predictive model to guess new IPv6 addresses. And that's that's what we made. We basically, there are a number of large public uh, IPv6 data sets that just had lots and lots of addresses on them. And so we took all those, concatenated them together, used those to generate a model. And then we used that model to predict a bunch of IPv6 addresses that might be real. And uh, th- this is pretty cool because we we spoke about this project at a number of conferences. And every time that we gave a new talk or g- gave a talk at another conference, we wanted to make sure that we didn't give the exact same talks. So we made sure to make like a significant contribution to the project between every talk. And it was when we were speaking at Troopers in Heidelberg, Germany, we were... We, we had gotten the initial stuff working. We had proven that the, that the concept actually worked. We were generating IPv6 addresses and finding them. And we were finding that like our guess rate, like we would, I think, get like one out of every thousand IPv6 addresses right. So we would make a thousand guesses and only one of them would be live. And that's not great, but it's still way, way better than one out of every two to the 128. So we had, we had made massive progress. But I remember sitting in the, uh, the the conference area at Troopers in Heidelberg with with my colleague Mark, and we had this new algorithm, or we had this algorithmic update that we were doing, and we ran it for the first time with this new algorithm, and it, I think it was like a three hundred times improvement. So whereas like previously it was one in one thousand that we were getting correct, it was like three hundred out of a thousand we were getting correct. And so this is this massive improvement. And we're just like super giddy for the presentation. Like, holy shit. I'm sorry. Sorry. Holy smokes. We, we, we did this crazy <laughs> stuff and it works so much better now. And, and we got to give that presentation on it. And that process of just like sticking to this project and continuing to iterate on the software and improving it. This software is open source. If you want to take a look at it, it's, uh, it's on my GitHub page. I'll put a link in the, in the talk or in, in the podcast description notes. Um, but this, we, we then basically had the most powerful tool for identifying real IPv6 addresses that are on the public internet, uh, that are responding to internet traffic. Um, and that was, that was, that was super fun. And the, the way that I will conclude this, this research discussion is from the last time that we gave this talk. And this was... I guess in 2019, it was kind of like leading up to leading up to the pandemic. Like we we were traveling around, traveling the world, giving this talk in all sorts of different places, getting really good feedback, and then kind of the pandemic crushed all all the the travel plans. Um, the last time that we gave this talk was in China, and it was my first time going to China. It was went to went to DefCon China uh, in Beijing. And we were going to give the talk there. 
and we get there and the the organizer of defcon or the defcon china asks us like hey our, our our keynote speaker actually was unable to make it um would you be up for being our keynote speaker and of course we're like absolutely that's amazing the i the opportunity to be a keynote speaker at defcon anywhere is 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 huge we would love to do that and then she's like oh but you you'll also have to give the talk um again in your regular slots like yeah totally that's totally fine so this is in China, and we had to submit our slides ahead of time so that they could be translated, so that they could be you know they could be put up in um, in in Chinese while we were talking. So the slides are locked in, and also we've been giving this presentation for like over a year at this point, and we've just been using the same slides and like incrementally improving them. So these slides have been around. We've been giving the talk for a while. Uh, it's not as if we made the slide specifically for this presentation. And so we're giving the talk. And, you know, anytime I'm giving a presentation, I'd like to have like a, 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 an image on every slide just because it helps keep somebody's attention. And I like that image to be thematic with whatever is being talked about. So there's one slide where uh, we're talking about some of our research outcomes. And it was disappointing. And so the picture is of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. And my colleague Mark is the one that is talking during the slide. And I look up at the, at the presentation and I see Eeyore there. And I think to myself, huh, isn't there like a, like a Winnie the Pooh thing in China? It's like, ah, th thankfully it's just Eeyore. And then we continue on with the, uh, with the presentation. And then at the end of the presentation... I realized that there was a picture of Winnie the Pooh a few slides earlier because there was a slide on honeypotting and the only time I've ever seen a honeypot visually in my whole life is like reading Winnie the Pooh as a child. So at this point, I realize that I've been on a really big stage with really massive screens that had Winnie the Pooh on them um, in Beijing. And for those of you that are not aware of Winnie the Pooh in China, uh, Winnie the Pooh is hella censored in China because there was a meme going around that compared a picture of President Xi Jinping and President Barack Obama standing next to each other and that it looked like uh, Tigger and Winnie the Pooh and that Xi Jinping looked like Winnie the Pooh. And as a result of that, Winnie the Pooh is hella banned in China. So at this point, we've given the first presentation, the keynote to this conference that had a picture of Winnie the Pooh in it. And we have to give the presentation a second time and we don't have the ability to change the slides because they're already locked in because they've been translated. So, we have to get back on stage realizing that we're about to be in front of... And, and take a look at the video on YouTube. The screens are not small. Um, we have to get back on stage. And like, and that's I think that slide was up on the screen for all of like half a second. We're like, eh, and there was results. And just like zoomed right through it. Uh, but we spent the rest of our time in China. We spent the rest of our time in China concerned about whether or not we were actually going to make it out of the country. Um, and that was a really surreal experience because like this, we had not meant to be offensive. We had not meant to do anything wrong. Um, like literally these slides had been in there. You can look at the presentations that we gave prior to that. That same slide had been in there the whole time. It was not made specifically for the, for the uh, Beijing talk. But it is quite the experience to be in a country and wonder whether or not you're going to be allowed out um, because you put a cartoon character in a slide deck. That doesn't sound like fun. 
It, it, it was that when, when that plane took off from the Beijing airport, the a sense of relief. I've never been happier to be back on American soil than when we landed at Seattle. And we made, it, it was like 7 a.m. We made a beeline for the Delta Lounge. And uh, we get to the Delta Lounge and they're just like setting up the bar. There's like some guy snoring on a couch over there. And there's a sign on the bar that says like Sky Miles Special. And you could get a uh, bottle of Dom Perignon for either $200 or 10,000 Sky Miles. And so I go down and put my bags down. And then I see Mark walking over with a bottle of Dom. (laughs) It's uh, it's uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. There's some dude snoring. And we're just like... Sipping on this Don Perignon, like thank God we made it back to this country. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so that was that was my research story. Basically, like it was really intellectually challenging. We got to travel around a bunch. The incremental improvements were super interesting. Especially, it's so gratifying when you make a tweak to an algorithm that you're working on, and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, that's 300x better. That was super cool. Um, and then finishing it off, like yeah, there's treacherous stuff that can happen in the world of security, and and. Uh, yeah, just kind of like a haphazard story about how we we may have messed up inadvertently, but fortunately got got out got out scot free. Mm-hmm. So First, yeah. is uh, is Hella a technical term? Uh, I think so. Yes, yeah, as yeah, far as as far as South Park's concerned, I think it's a technical term. Uh, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> so you had like your own Pied Piper moment, right? Where you're like, "Oh snap!" Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was it was. It was just standing there like, oh, thank God, it's just Eeyore. Oh, no, it's not just Eeyore. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, I was talking about your improvements in Germany. Oh, oh, that one. That one. Yeah, yeah. that was that was that that was anytime you get anytime you get results that good, you kind of look at it and you're like, um, so what broke? Because that's obviously not real. But in right. this case, it was very much real. And and we found lots and lots of IPv6 addresses as a result of this. And we were using DigitalOcean, which you should never use DigitalOcean ever. <laughs> Damn you, DigitalOcean. Why did you delete my data? <laughs> not sponsored by DigitalOcean. <laughs> <laughs> also not sponsored by any of their competitors, but you know. <laughs> That's fair. We, we don't have sponsors. We don't yet, oh. and probably never. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I well let's not let's not say never, but uh, definitely not DigitalOcean. <laughs> uh, only good companies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> only companies that don't delete their users' data. Anyway, that's my research project. <laughs> Drew, you're you're up to bat. Tell us about OpenBTS. Oh man, so OpenBTS is not my project. Like I didn't start OpenBTS. Um, I chose to talk about OpenBTS because it did accelerate a lot of my research, but it also accelerated the research in the cellular community um, by leaps and bounds because it allowed easy access to create your own cell network for, you know, relatively cheap uh, at the time. So you could do it with, you know, at the time, it was like a thousand dollar laptop and you know a hundred dollar radio with this software and you can make your own little cellular network and uh, i was using this quite a bit um before i eventually was able to gain access to the commercial source code for well 
certain cellular networks. So <laughs> um, it was acquired and bought legally. Thank you. Also, thank you, taxpayers. Because um, <laughs> God knows I can't afford buying that. Uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> it is, uh, you know, it, it's a project. It's kind of dead now. Um, uh, just because it open BTS, uh, was a GSM cell simulator and GSM is, you know, a dead technology now, um, rarely used, but the idea behind open BTS was, Hey, let's enable communications in, um, you know, rural areas or areas which, don't have good cell infrastructure right now. And every hacker in the world was just like, LOL, no. Um, we're going to use this to start attacking baseband's and cell phones. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what we started using it, right? Like the first, there was a talk that was given uh, at DEF CON in 2010. And I remember seeing this talk. And uh, I, uh, the person took OpenBTS and made it into an ISME catcher. Uh, so essentially what everyone knows as a Stingray, uh, it's an ISME catcher. Um, this person did for, again, you know, under $2,000, which was unheard of considering that the only ISME catcher known to exist at that time to the public cost nearly a quarter million dollars, right? That's such a game changer. Uh, so so now people are like, oh, we can use this for offensive purposes. And, and OpenBTS by itself does not make a great ISME catcher. Um, uh, but with a lot of modifications to it, it makes a better ISME catcher. Uh, so that's what a lot of people started doing with it. Uh, my first run-in with OpenBTS is uh, I got hired to a research lab. And at this research lab, you had like two weeks to like kind of prove yourself or like you just got fired. And which is stressful as an intern uh, being paid $8 an hour in a research lab. Uh, so I use OpenBTS uh, to crash um, Nokia based phones. And uh, on this, I was attacking um, older brick Nokia phones that were commonly used by drug runners and human trafficking at the time. Um, but I was able to use OpenBTS and then uh, send a payload through it to these Nokia phones that would then crash the baseband. Uh, it would restart the phone. The phone would do a whole bunch of odd behaviors. Um, and it really solidified like, hey, okay, cool. I'm not going to get fired from this research position that I've been wanting all my life. And I just got, uh, and I mean, there's a ton of other crazy items with that, but my favorite part with, with open BTS, uh, or one of my favorite parts is there was a phone called the black phone and the black phone was by a company called silent circle, um, which makes terrible products. Everyone hates them. Um, uh, they were trying to like offer secure communication to special forces. Um, mm. and how, how, how 
disregarded this phone was, uh, or, or like the service, I should say, Silent Circle, um, was I remember a special forces team coming to me and being like, hey, we have Silent Circle. Have you ever heard of it? And I was like, no. And uh, they're like, yeah, so uh, you should uh, you, you should definitely play around with it. And I was like, okay, you should play around with this. I was like, cool, yeah. Uh, can you give me like some copies of it? Because I'm not going to sign up for it. And they want to charge me to like play with it. And so they gave me a few phones with it on there. And I started playing around with it and I hooked it up the open BTS setup. And then, um, and then I found some problems, uh, with it. Uh, but then, uh, while in the midst of playing with it, silent circle was coming out with this black phone and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. So, and they're like presenting it as a tool that could be used for journalists uh, overseas to be hidden so that their communications couldn't be, you know, intercepted and read. Um, they could have a secure device that they could trust to communicate with their sources. Uh, they also presented it as like a tool that could be used for espionage. It's actually in the public spy museum, which I find hilarious because like never in the life of anyone has that phone to use. Yeah. The black phone. Ugh. Um, yeah, it was donated by like silent circle. Um, I didn't know you could just donate crap to museums. <laughs> um, but I, I, I thought about donating a bag of dog shit, uh, <laughs> saying, <laughs> saying as useful as the black phone. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this thing was going to come out when I, and when I was looking at these, you know, the sound circle stuff, I was like, yeah, this is a good phone to get people killed. Um, and so I started talking about this, uh, in, in the intelligence community, um, to journalists and stuff like that. And, you know, everyone, the, the device isn't out yet. And I, I'm talking mad hate against it. I'm like, trust me, like <laughs> it's going to be bad. Um, and it was bad. It got hacked in five minutes. The first five minutes it got released to the public, which was at DEF CON. It got hacked. Um, and uh with that um it uh the worst part though was what i feared was going to happen and this is where it ties in the open bts so i spun up an open bts instance and i powered on the black phone and sure enough the black phone screams out hey I'm looking for silent service or silent circle services. And I'm just like, yep, this is exactly what I thought it was. Um, <laughs> so I started to write a signature that would look for this in the cellular network. Um, and I wrote a signature uh, and then I was able, I started asking other groups around the U S to give me like a whole bunch of dumps um, from cellular networks. Um so the U.S. Marshals was kind enough to facilitate this request. Um, and uh, I was like, I'm interested in like the Virginia area. I'm interested <laughs> in Nevada area, like during these dates. Right. So they're just like, yeah, sure. OK. Um, 
So getting these dumps and um, this is, you know, I'm, I, I've already left like the research lab at this point. Um, but these teams, I was still very helpful to them. So they're very helpful to me. And uh, I'm getting these dumps and then they're just like broad use dumps. There's tons of information in them, but I didn't care about anything except for black phone data. And sure enough, I'm running these dumps looking for these indicators that someone's using a black phone. And it was just screaming out every single like second. Um, and I was just like, cool. So uh, now if you want to, uh, and I was, again, um, I proved this, this particular signature with open BTS. Um, but I was like, okay, so if you want to be able to black bag anyone that you think is going to be suspicious over in your country, this is the string that you use. Um, and I gave it to a few teams and I was just like, you'll know if someone is trying to, you know, use this as an indicator of, of, of strange behavior. Uh, if you're starting to see this, I don't know what they did with those. Um, they were good teams, U.S. teams, so I'm not worried they were being abused. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Open BTS without that, and I was talking to a lot of reporters about this, and I was asking them, like, don't publish this. Just tell your other reporter friends to never use this phone over in country. Um, and, and some of the reporters I know did talk about it with their other reporter friends. Um, but open BTS allowed for me to show like, Hey, this isn't just like some kooky idea that I have, um, that this phone is going to be dangerous to reporters. Um, here's the proof that this phone is dangerous. And then here is like the, not more than just proof of concept, the actual, indicator of you know some some type of odd behavior um that someone would have that any nation state could run through their own cellular network or, or the cellular networks on their carriers um to just find you and i mean we've seen how some nations act to reporters right and this is this is way before it was known in the public that nations just kill reporters um like to the mass public where i think that's known now um, so all that to, to say that open BTS has accelerated a ton of cellular research. Is it the best tool? No, it's not the best tool. Was it one of the best tools at the time? It was a very good tool. Um, but our current state of cellular security would be nowhere near where it is today without it. And my career would also be nowhere near where it is today without open BTS, um, which is why I picked it as a project, even though I didn't write open BTS, I heavily used it, heavily modified it. Um, my updates that I wanted to push to open BTS actually got denied. Um, because they they're serve. like, no, you can't just put raw exploits in this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it did not further the project's vision. Is, is what I was told. Uh, uh. <laughs> that sounds like corporate speak for what I just said. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but you could totally make this way better. Uh, I mean, and when I say way better, I mean terrible for, for everyone else. 
Yep. Um, yep. But the last story I'll say with OpenBTS is um, as a joke. Uh, it I I used to uh, I ran oh, an OpenBTS instance. I think at, I know where this is going from. <laughs> yeah, at, at my university um, for a little while, um, and I actually I, I built a thesis around OpenBTS. Um, and my university was very supportive of it, but that's because they didn't know of this. I used to text random people as 911 <laughs> uh, <laughs> saying like, there's an emergency in your building, please leave, <laughs> right? And the phone would see the text message as 911. Uh, and at this time, uh, people were like getting introduced to the idea of like flash SMS um, which is like those Amber alerts that you see. So SMS ah, zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, OpenBTS didn't support that out of the box, uh, but you can make it support it. Uh, actually, the, <laughs> that that was done with the commercial offerings uh, to support that feature set. But with OpenBTS itself, um, uh, you could just pretend to be anyone. And so I would pretend to be 911 and I would just text random people like there's an emergency in your building, please leave. And there was multiple cases where uh, I didn't know who it was, but it was always an iPhone uh, because iPhone had this terrible bug in it where it would connect to like any cellular network that was strong. And um, this is like iPhone three. And uh, so I, I would just start seeing iPhones connect to my my open bts instance and i would just send these photos or uh, these text messages and i started taking photos because i would see uh you know like people get up from where they're at and leave the building uh, at school <laughs> i was just like oh shit um i i did get approached uh one time by the uh, uh it staff at the school about it uh, because they they were getting some you know complaints about it, and they're like, "Hey, is this you?" I was like, "Yeah, this is totally me." And um, they're like, "Please stop." Uh, <laughs> 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 also, can you show us how you did that? Because oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I was stop, like, "How yeah. you doing the second half? Please stop doing it." Yeah, <laughs> nope. yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I used to for a while. I I had a little Pelican case I would carry with me, and I had a USRP in it and a computer. And it had two software stacks. One was an open BTS stack and one was a commercial um, stack. Um, and uh, it, it it was fun to play around with, right? Start up your own cell instance. I was young. Uh, I was stupid. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be popping up your own rogue cellular networks because that interferes with traditional E911 services. Yeah. Um, but it, it is a great project. Um, and there are from that spawned from it are many, many better projects as well that are relevant today, such as open LTE and other open source cellular network stacks. Um, but yeah, open BTS. Sorry, that was, uh, you know, went off in a few different directions there with it. But uh, that's why I picked that project, something I didn't directly do, um, but something that heavily influence the security community and heavily influence my career. But one of the things that, that that brings to mind for me is just how much the whole like open source community, there's, there's such an overlap between open source and, and, and hacking. And it's like, 
it's one of the reasons that research is so heavily endorsed is that so much of what you have been given has been free, has been on the shoulders of the people before them. Like all of the all of modern Linux is built on this whole open source ecosystem that is just like some of the best engineers in the world contributing their time for free and building something that powers modern society and doing research and contributing back is one of the ways that you can, you know, basically pay back in some small amount what you have been given. And and that's what I, I, that that's one of the core motivations for me is like I have gotten so much in my life for free because of all the stuff that all these other people did. Let me do that um, and, and do what I can to help help other folks out because of how much I have benefited. And I think that that is a, that is one of the core ethos of of hackers is like you got to give back to the community. So the three takeaways for today's show are one. IPv666 is a research project focused on enumerating the IPv6 address space. Two, Ubuntu phones were a great example of how persistence is key in all hacking experiments. And three, OpenBTS is an open source software stack that allows you to create your own cellular base stations and has played a significant role in Drew's ability to play pranks on his friends in college. As we've mentioned in numerous episodes before, security research is a cornerstone of the modern security industry. Conducting your own research and sharing the results with the community is regarded as a highly positive way to contribute back to the community. We hope you enjoyed hearing about some of our own favorite research projects, and maybe you're even inspired to try your hand at digging into something new yourself. And with that, that's the end of our third season. It's kind of crazy to think about the fact that we are 30 episodes in. This is, <laughs> I myself am really ADD, so if I can stick with something for this long, it's pretty, it's pretty novel. Um, <laughs> but we're, it's going to be another few weeks before we come up with our next episode. We typically take four weeks off between seasons. Uh, we're going to come back with hopefully a, a slew of, of new improvements. Might even get some video recordings in for for next season. And, you know, we really appreciate you joining us for this journey. And and if you would like us to talk about anything in particular, hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on, uh, I guess Twitter is probably the best, or LinkedIn. Um, and give us some ideas about what you want to hear about or who you want to hear us interview. Because, uh, you know, we, we, we love having you here and, and we hope you're, you're enjoying yourself. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.